Hi, my name is Infinite, and for more than seven years, I've had the privilege of working as a community organizer on issues related to education equity. And while I've seen a lot of potential for transformation, we have a long way to go. Welcome to Back to Freedom Schools, ongoing conversations about education equity in the state of Vermont. There is nothing like a global pandemic to peel back some of the layers that cover up the racial and social inequities in our state and country. As our public schools face this dilemma head on, the situation on the ground remains way more complicated than the policy and political debates about getting back to normal. Our friend Kathleen Kesson reminds us, it is human nature to want to get back to normal following a crisis of great magnitude, to restore a sense of stability. But what if, she asks, so-called normal forms of social, economic, and ecological behaviors are themselves at the root of the crisis? Now that we are dominated by logistical and safety concerns, priorities have shifted away from addressing the inequities that existed in our public school system before COVID-19. In this program, some of the topics we cover will fall under the broad umbrella of education equity, including areas like school finance and curriculum, with special attention being given to racial equity, literacy, and of course, decolonizing education systems. Thank you for listening. Hi, Judy. Hi. Thank you for being here. Can we just start with you um, sharing with us who you are? Sure. I come from two relatively large French Indian families. My mother uh, was from a, a family, a French Indian family of 16 children. They grew up in the interval. They were the last ones to live at the Ethan Allen homestead. My father came from a family of three, but his grandfather had 12. So large families, again, large French Indian families. He also grew up in Burlington on the cliffs overlooking the interval in a place called Moccasin Village. I've been an educator. Um, I've been in self-contained classrooms, taught at the Chittenden County Correctional Facility, taught at recent, in recent years, I've taught at 196 schools throughout this state and many, many school districts across New England. I have degrees in education, native studies, and teaching for social justice. And so what was school like for you uh, growing up? here in Vermont? Well, um, it was different. I grew up in uh, the north end of Burlington, the new north end of Burlington from um, Columbus Day weekend to April vacation from school. April vacation from school for seven months till Columbus weekend. We lived on a dirt road in South Eero and many, many, many of my aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents were all there at the same time. So I was raised in this, in this mode of traveling back and forth from Burlington to South Hero with the season. School was limited for me. Western style schools were limited for me because from April to um, October, I still had traditional learning at home. I learned how to plumb and 
do plumbing and and how to um, have gardens and and can and dehydrate and freeze and harvest various plants and learn how to read the land and the water when it was time to go fishing. So education continued for me during those months. It was just very different than what was the norm in a Western style of school. I'm presuming that, uh, you know, because all young people can be, you know, sometimes a little rambunctious, like how were, you know, what we call now behavioral issues, how, how are those dealt with when you were growing up? I don't remember many behavioral issues. I mean, if, because we had chores to do in the morning and they weren't really referred to as chores. They were kind of referred to as life survival skills. <laughs> you do them if you want to live, right? Yep. And um, and then we would off go off and explore for the day. And we had to be home when the sun hit the top of the cedars, which was about four o'clock. And often we'd end up fishing for dinner or there were enough, some more skip uh, chores. But again, they were considered life survival skills, not okay. not necessarily, you know, school or or work. Okay. And so I'm going to get into some questions around education equity or inequities in our, in our education system. Right now, uh, you know, in, in recent weeks or months, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the inequities in, in education when school closed um, and how much came out. I'd like to take a, a, a step back and, and just talk a little bit about um, inequities that existed before the COVID pandemic and maybe some of the things y you saw as an educator, K through five ed educator. I was in a self-contained classroom from teaching K-1-2 for maybe 15 years. After that, for another 15 or so, I've taught K-12 and um, adult learning. Have, and, and so maybe I'm being a little presumptuous here, but had you seen any inequities in the education system while you were um, working in those self-contained classrooms? Oh yeah, for sure. So I live in Essex and worked in Essex. So Essex had a few people of color because of IBM, but not, but not many. The differences I usually saw were things like uh, class. You know, I can remember discussions about um, migrant workers, children, mm. don't have great expectations from him. He sleeps in his truck, his father's truck at night. Or I remember hearing things like discussions, teacher room discussions, things like, um, I know he stutters, but don't worry, he'll outgrow it. His mother did. So you see a lot of generational things being discussed and a lot of things from um, around class um, being discussed um, in, in ways that I didn't feel were often appropriate. What do you think schools can do to more effectively address these kind of inequities? Today? Today. Well, those equities exist today, but there are more. 
so there are more inequities to around BIPOC people or people of color that I've seen. And so what could schools address today? They, I guess um, it all comes down to education for teachers. Teachers often think they know the answer mm -hmm. um, because they've gone to college, they spend their lifetime learning, but they don't always know things around ethnic studies and understanding different cultures because they're coming from an outsider perspective, not an insider perspective. Um, so I think the what could help would be um, extensive education for teachers. Okay. That's one thing. Another thing I think I could that could help is is the way we assess children and the way we teach them. Um, so not uh, children of various cultures learn various ways. Teachers need to be um, made aware of that. So for instance, when a teacher says, look at me when I'm talking to you, that could be extremely offensive to some cultures to make direct eye contact. And um, the teacher may be clueless about that. And so then it's perceived as a behavioral issue when the child doesn't look, when really it's a, it's a sign of respect. Right. So I think there has to be some cultural understanding and it has to come from within the culture um, that's being explained. It can't come from, from a white normative <laughs> To, um, to teach because they will be teaching it from an outsider's perspective. I see. And so teachers, teacher training aside, uh, can you think of anything beyond the school system that you think uh, we can do as a, a, a community or a state, we can do as a state to address inequities in, in, the, you know, in the larger community? Well, Again, I keep going back to education, but um, I think the larger community votes. And if they're not educated, they're not making good um, conscious decisions. But also I think looking at these different um, culture groups and the fact that children are being assessed and they not, may not have necessarily been taught in the way that they learn best, there has to be a balance. There has to be a match with those assessments and what the teachers are teaching and then, um, and then some kind of accountability for what's been taught okay. and learned. Yeah. And so when you say assessment and, and you say accountability, what types of data or information do you think are most important for us to be paying attention to in order to know whether learning and educational experiences and, and outcomes are improving? I think a basic essential understandings are missing. So core curriculum can hit all the curriculum areas, but essential understandings can hit culture. It can hit classes. It can hit anything that's not necessarily in core curriculum standards. So let's see, what could I give you as an example? 
So if um, a teacher in third and fourth grade was going to look at the Vermont standards and say, oh, I need to teach about indigenous people, but they didn't have the basic essential understandings of, you know, um, when these people were recognized, how they were recognized, who they were recognized as, they don't live on reservations, why don't they live on reservations, and what is their government, and where are they geographically from? If they don't have that basic information, then they can't teach that basic information. So I think basic central understandings on ethnic studies of all different ethnic groups have to be formed. So it could be something as simple as a definition for ethnic studies, a definition for bias, a definition for stereotypes, um, a definition for all these different things that are connected with ethnic studies and, and background history as to where that definition came from. Uh -huh. Then the teachers know. Then when you assess the child, you're assessing the child to see if the teacher is teaching to the basic essential understandings. Got you. Now I'm going to go off track a little bit because you made me remember, so you, you, you just brought something up for me. Um, I've heard R Vermont uh, described as Ndakina. Ndakina. Ndakina, yeah. right? And the, the, the beautiful green mountains of Ndakina, the, what was described to me as the unceded territory of the Abeniki nation. Mm -hmm. what, what does that mean? Well, so after King Philip's War, there were other wars, of course. There was what, what textbook called the French Indian Wars, which really weren't the Indian Wars. They, they were wars between Great Britain and France over who was going to control this land. The Indians jumped in because they were concerned about their land too. Their land was being stolen, both by the French and the English. So they jumped into the battle. But after that, there was a borderline drawn with the Paris Treaty. And that borderline um, between Canada and New France left um, 12 surviving family bands south, south of the Canadian border. They were all Wabanaki people. Um, some of them, um, like Penobscot or Passamaquoddy, received recognition under their tribal names, federal recognition. Some of them received state recognition, like Missisqua and Kawas. But others did not try for recognition for many reasons. Um, there may have been trauma within their communities, like eugenics. Um, and they were fearful of being recognized publicly. And, and so I think that, <laughs> I think that kind of sums it up, right? Yep, that's right. Thank you for, for that lesson. Uh, and so here we are in the, sometimes the whitest state and other years, the second whitest state uh, in the country. Why should our local and state and federal uh, or even private foundations invest in racial equity in a state like Vermont, which is almost entirely white? Like why, why here? Um, 
it, it can become a pretty boring place if everybody's the same, right? And so differences are good. It makes life interesting. It makes conversations is interesting. And um, so I think the more the diverse population is, the better we are. We grow with knowledge, right? Yeah. And um, so I think that Vermont has had a history of, of not encouraging um, people of color to live here. During the eugenics period, they sent out publications to colleges looking for people who were professionally trained to use their brain for a living to come and buy second homes here. But those who worked in manufacturing or banking were not encouraged to move here. They would not find continuity or, or a sense of belief. And manufacturing were referring mostly to the French Indian people, the French Canadian people and banking were was referring to Jews. So, and today we have these same promotional things going on by the state. They're paying $10,000 for people to move to this state and work remotely. And so they're looking again for a specific middle-class people because they can work, they can hold jobs then work remotely where the lower class of people might not necessarily have the skills to work remotely. Yeah. Huh. And so what was is today, right? It hasn't changed. So what could the state do is take a look at their in, inner south, their inner direction. We believe in seven directions, north, south, east, west, up and down, and the direction you, you yourself is taking in life and that's what the state needs to do is look at the direction they're taking because they're following exactly the same path they did during the eugenics period i think that's a great pivot somewhat into some questions around literacy and really kind of fast forward to the state of literacy in vermont right now according to some of the the sbac data we have nearly half of Vermont's youth have not learned to read on grade level by the time they leave high school. We, so we, we hear about students who graduate and who have not really learned how to read or write well. In, in your experience, what do you think is going on here? I think there's a couple of things. The first thing I think of is PBIS. It's become a system to identify people of color as needy and um, having behavioral problems and difficulties reading. And, and so ultimately through the years, they end up diagnosed as special ed. And if you look at some of the recent research, it's indicating that this is the new eugenics. So children are leaving school with a um, label. I think the other part is um, Vermont has always been a place to try something new and different. And although we have this pictorial background of, you know, being rural and all of that, they try to be very aggressive and progressive. So for decades, they've like embraced whole language learning. 
um, and memorizing the sight words and memorizing words. And that has helped many children, but it's not touched a, a lot of children. And it impacts all children when they get to like fourth grade and they are introduced to multisyllabic words like president or testimony. And they've got to break those words up and sound them out. Once they get to that point in their learning, if they haven't had phonics, they haven't learned how to take these multisyllabic words and break them up. And for the children who work, who learn best with phonics, um, in most classes, it's not a choice to learn phonetically because the teachers have not been trained to teach phonetically for decades. And I think there's a few other things that contribute to that as well. Um, so behaviors are one. Reading is the key to all people learning and growing, right? And it is based on 52 BAME concepts that children learn, very small children learn, um, second, third, second, uh, two and three and four years old, five years old. So there's 52 BAME concepts and there are things like um, put the glass on top of the table, your shoes are under the table, your coat is next to or on, you know, on top of or first or last or um, in the beginning or in the end. So if children of of another ethnic, ethnic group come here, it doesn't matter if they're middle school, high school, or elementary school, and they have those concepts in their language, but they don't have those concepts in English. How can you teach them to give you the first sound in reading or the ending sound in reading if they don't know first and they don't know end? Mm. Um, so those are very simple um, things that children need before they learn to read, all children need. Yeah. And so if you're coming here with a different language or from a different ethnic group, and you don't have those concepts um, in English, you may have them in your cultural group, but if you don't have them in English, reading is a difficult thing for you. And of course, when you get to middle school, if you don't have those concepts down, then you don't take the advanced math and the advanced English so that when you get to high school, you are able to take college prep courses. If you don't take college prep courses, college is not in your future. Right. So it's a big circle and that goes, keeps going round and round and round. Do you think that remote learning might have uh, an impact on uh, students who struggle with reading or, or, or writing on grade level? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so if you're on a, a foreign thing like a Zoom call, <laughs> not, that's not, that's not um, second nature to most people. If you're doing something like that and you can't figure out a word, there's no way in front of the class you're gonna let that be known, and especially if it's being recorded. Right. And so when children get the assistance one on one or in small reading groups or whatever in the classroom setting, they they have that that feeling of not of belonging to a group of not being different. And so they can learn 
in that smaller group. And as far as I know, that's those smaller groups are not happening one-on-one -on -one or in or remotely. I think that um, it could help immensely. Some of these kids are struggling because even if um, these hybrid ways of learning these days, you have just 10 kids in the class on a call, on a remote call, um, that still is too large. It takes a lot of courage to belong to a group, to feel like you belong to a group. And then once you belong to that group, you, you have to master a skill. And to do that in front of people is difficult. Um, if you're struggling with it. So remote learning cannot possibly be easy for children struggling to learn to read. Do you, do you think we can improve? The, the, so there are ways you think we can improve remote learning? Yeah, I, it, it, unfortunately it takes more remote learning um, because you have to divide the group into a smaller group. I mean, teachers have learned over the years things like um, when I grew up, they used to say you'd go around the room and everybody would read a portion of whatever it is you were studying aloud. And they have learned how painful that is for some children. And so that style of, of teaching has diminished and, and children get to read to the teacher in other ways, one-on-one -on -one or small groups. And I think if you increase the remote learning, you could reach out to those smaller children, those smaller groups. Mm -hmm. But I also know, and I, I keep, I'm playing the devil's advocate here, that there are so many ways that teachers are teaching these days, you know, with these hybrid me methods where they're in person a couple of days and on on zoom one day and then in person with the other half of the class a couple of days that type of thing is like double lessons because you can't use that that zoom call on wednesday for both the 10 kids in the monday and tuesday and the 10 kids on thursday and friday because the thursday and friday kids haven't had what the monday tuesday kids have so you have to create a whole nother set of lesson plans for Wednesday. So teachers are doing double duty now. I understand that. But I also think that there are ways perhaps a paraeducator could work with a small reading group or a special educator or a chapter one reading teacher. Um, you know, perhaps there are ways or even, even, um, read alouds with grandparents or volunteers, any of that to give the child that one-on-one -on -one experience virtually will, will help them, I think. Have you seen any of these uh, learning differences or learning challenges play out differently across race? Yes, because of PBIS. Mm. So PBIS is identifying kids as behavioral problems really early on. And what it really is, is they can't read or they can't make school every day for one reason or another, or um, there's lots of reasons, right? And so when that happens, it become, there becomes a color line there. Yeah. And it gets followed 
the child eventually gets labeled. On the positive side of that, if that happens, I think it's critical to explain to the child what's going on and have that child become a voice in the process. If that child understands what's happening and becomes a validated voice in the process, um, that can make a huge difference. And they take ownership for their learning. That's right. I'm assuming you've also seen this play out differently across household income as well? Yes. Let me give you an example. So for me, equity is, is three pairs of kids having three pairs of, three kids having each a pair of sneakers and the sneakers are all the same. But what you're seeing is three kids with sneakers. One is brand new. Um, one doesn't have shoestrings and one has the sole flapping in the wind. And so when you see those three things, you know there's no equity there. So you have to do your best to make it equitable. So you can either get shoestrings for the kid who doesn't have them and t or tape the sole of the shoe to, with duct tape, which I've done before, or get two more pairs of sneakers so everything is equal. And so those inequities, as simple as having a pair of sneakers that are, can tie up and you can walk and run with, um, makes a huge difference in learning and in self-esteem and in moving forward in a good way. Mm -hmm. I think you, you spoke to this question, so I'm sorry if it sounds redundant, but I'll ask it again more directly. How is reading taught? How do people learn to read and write? Yeah, I did kind of speak to that. It starts with uh, those 52 bang concepts that children learn. And think of the toys and the games that children have. So one of the first toys my son had was a little wooden train set. Mm -hmm. And he, we would talk, we would give him all the language he needed, which one is going to go first, and he would choose the engine, he would choose the caboose for last. They would go through the tunnels and they would go over the bridges. And so that language is taught to him, was taught to my son very, very early. So then developing the skills he needed to identify the first sound, the middle sound, the last sound, to break the multisyllabic words up were really helpful to him. Economics sometimes prevents children from having those things to learn. And parents don't always have, they're working two jobs. They don't always have the time to say, let's line these rocks up and which one's first, which one's second, which one's third, because they're working to feed the family and put a roof over their head. So economics plays a part in that. But also language, people of color having different languages, um, different cultures also plays a role in that. What about these standardized exams in, in terms of their ability to assess young people's uh, ability to read and write? Yeah. What about them? Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think they have to be first looked at differently. If you're going to use these tests to assess kids reading, you have to look at them in assessing the teachers as well. What is it that the teacher's learning that makes this child fly or makes this child sink? 
And so you have to use it as the assessment or accountability for the teacher, as well as assessment for the child. It can't just be a straight figure that says 50% of our children are not reading when they graduate from high school or whatever. There, there has to be more to that. There has to be a why. And so I think that's, that's one thing. But I also think that there's so many ways of learning. So teachers learn very on early on in their careers that, that you can teach by hands-on, tactically, or you can teach by lecture and just verbally, or you can have um, something visually, right, to learn from. And all of those things, they learn how to do. And a good teacher will use all of those things in teaching. And they have to because every student um, learns differently. And what often happens is the teacher teaches with the style they learn best. And when the teacher teaches with the style they learn best, only it's problematic for the kid who learns in a different style. And so I think we have to consider that when we're looking at assessments. Is the style making a difference in the manner in which the teacher teaches? Or is it just something within the child that's making it difficult for the child to learn? What does it mean to decolonize our education and learning systems? What does that look like to you? Well, decolonizing to me kind of means like tearing down the walls that built whatever it is is in place and rebuilding it in a new and different way or it may be an old way that worked before i wrote a paper on on deconstructing the myths of the first thanksgiving and in that paper i talk about another perspective a different perspective that's not typically considered in textbooks and that's what I'm thinking of for decolonizing, is tearing things down and looking at it in a different light, from a different perspective, from a different angle, and how it might impact many, many people. And you think we have uh, an opportunity to do that now with uh, the way that school is being just, you know, re re-envisioned? I mean, a whole like, instructional uh, approaches, all that stuff. Do you think now is a good time for reconsidering uh, and, and really taking a, a deep dive into what it looks like to, t- you know, to deconstruct and reconstruct the education system? I do. I do. For many reasons. Number one, climate change is happening. Some people don't admit it, but it is happening. Uh, it's going to change our world. We're going through the narrows into a new world where all systems as we know them will be broken. And so I think it's the ideal time to, recon- to consider reconstructing uh, a new world. And that would include education. So just to give you a little example, I am the executive director of Gadakana and I have seven staff all over New England. And I was on the road all the time communicating with them and seeing what they're working on in their project. Now through Zoom, we have weekly meetings that are so supportive and helpful to everybody. 
I can write proper grants because I hear from them on a weekly basis what their needs are. And they can share with other staff what's working and what's not working and come up with new ideas. As tiring as Zoom can be, um, it's been a huge plus for communication for us. It's been a great thing. And I think Zoom calls or that kind of platform can be good in many ways once people learn how to use it properly and, and how to make it part of their plans. I'm a little concerned about stressing teachers out with asking them to do too many things, like in a hybrid method. If you could choose a method and go with that method and, and develop it to your fullest ability, I think it's time for change and that is a good way to help you change. Thank you for spending this time with me, Judy. Um, I look forward to talking to you again and uh, learning more about what's going on, what you're doing on the ground. <laughs>